Well, friends, grace, mercy, and peace be upon you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, there can be no doubt, there can be no doubt that in a few short days, we as a country will be celebrating our freedom and our independence. And it's, it's not that uh, I doubt because it's not on the calendar. It is on the calendar. I can see that the 4th of July is coming. But, but quite honestly, there is no doubt because at least in my neighborhood, a small battalion of artillery has sort of moved in, right? About three days ago, all of a sudden, everything starts lighting up at night, and you can hear the sounds of freedom as things blow up in the sky. Why is it, by the way, uh, that we blow up things to celebrate our freedom and our independence? I don't know, but listen, as, as a little kid... I loved, quite honestly, I loved blowing up things to celebrate freedom and independence. I loved that celebration of this holiday because it meant that I got to buy fireworks. Now, I grew up in Colorado, as most of you know, where it is very, very illegal to shoot off fireworks because it is exceptionally dry in Colorado. And so if, let's say, a stray firework were to light something on fire, it's probable then that the entire state would just go up in flames. And so it was very, very illegal to shoot off fireworks. Now, when you're a middle school kid, you don't care about the laws. And in fact, I I probably shouldn't say this because my dad will watch this later, but as a family, we used to go to Wyoming and buy all of our fireworks and then come back into Colorado. Because in Wyoming, apparently nothing is illegal, right? That's just where you went. So we went over the border, we got all these fireworks, and we came back, and we lived in a cul-de-sac. And so we would would shoot our fireworks off in the middle of that cul-de-sac. Now, there were two other boys my age in that cul-de-sac. My immediate neighbor, Jay Binkley, and then at the very end of the cul-de-sac was a boy named Nathan Unterseer. And we had it in our bright, brilliant sort of middle school minds that what we should do is we should compile all the fireworks that we have and sort of light them together. And our favorite were, of course, uh, these little little firecrackers, right? Nothing big. They, they just literally made a sound and a flash, and they just kind of blew up. And we thought those were amazing. We had like 500 of them. Now, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to put the firecracker on the ground, Right? And then light it, right, and watch the fuse go, and then it blows up, and you, of course, get out of the way. But again, in our brilliant young sort of minds as middle school boys, we thought, eh, why look at directions? That seems silly. So what did we do? Well, we would hold the firecracker and light it, and then wait for the fuse to get as close as possible to the firecracker, and then throw it. Now... For 400 and say like 90 of those times, it worked amazing. 491, different story. My friend, Nathan Underseer, right? He was holding on to that firecracker. He lit it, and the fuse moved a lot faster than he expected. And in his sort of reaction, he did get it out of his hand, but just barely. And he's missing now just the tiny, itty-bitty tip of his pinky finger. On one hand, we get sort of look at that event and those moments and think, you know, uh, it is a, our freedom is a real gift, right? To, to be able to blow up things as we celebrate it. On the other hand, on the other hand, a freedom is costly. In this case, it was the tip of a pinky finger. 
You know, every time we come around to July 4th and the weekends that are around it, it gives us as Christ followers an opportunity, an opportunity to reflect on freedom and the cost of that freedom. But my fear is, church, my, my fear is, is that whether we chose to or not, that a lot of us, that a lot of us, when we hear the word freedom, the first thing we think is our civil freedom. That's the first picture that pops into our head, this sort of civil liberty that you and I possess that we're here in America. Now, I was having a conversation with a gentleman who's faithful Christian, uh, just sort of an ordinary bloke. And in that conversation, it became quite clear that when he thinks of freedom, the first thing he thinks is not spiritual freedom, but civil freedom. In the course of that conversation, he was trying to convince me that we needed to take our country back. Like that's, that's what faithful Christians ought to be doing presently, is to take, to take the country back. And it was just an interesting observation to note that for him, right, for him, at least in the conversation that we were having, that the freedom he was talking about is really civil and not spiritual. And I wonder, I wonder for how many of us, when we hear the word freedom, the first thing we think is our civil freedoms rather than our spiritual freedoms. Now, it doesn't help that we have a culture who is sort of yakking into our ears. And it doesn't help, to be quite honest, that we have a rise in what is called Christian nationalism. That voice and that chatter of Christian nationalism, it, it blends some things together that is quite unhelpful. And in this conversation that I was having with this gentleman, again, faithful guy, super faithful guy, just an ordinary guy, began to ask the question, you know, as we were sort of rubbing shoulders and words together, I made the observation that as Christian nationalism, right, the thing that matters most is being a nationalist. It's the noun, if you will. And being a Christian just describes my kind of nationalism as compared to being a Christian who happens to live in America. And so it's not helpful, actually, for those of us who are trying to orient our lives around Jesus and who are, who are trying at some level to, to grow in Christ's likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit to have sort of a yakking of the culture. And again, consciously or unconsciously, lots of us, lots of us will drift into the cultural understandings of freedom. Now, I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate the freedom that we have as Americans. And that our independence, that, that is something that I value, and I think that we should value it. But, but I, I want to, as a pastor, I, I want to make sure that when we think of freedom, we think of the, really the freedom that matters most. And that, that friends, is not our freedom as Americans. This kind of 
juxtaposition, if you will, of both a civil freedom and a spiritual freedom, this really isn't new. It's sort of been at odds for quite a long time. And it is true, actually, in the context of Jesus' day. I want us to go briefly uh, to Luke's gospel. So I want you to grab a Bible, or if you brought one, that's fine. I want you to come with me to Luke chapter 4, just briefly, before we'll get to Galatians chapter 5. So Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. We heard Johanna read it earlier as we were worshiping this morning. But I want to recount what's happening here. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has just come out of the desert, and he comes out of the desert, out of this time of of temptation and trial. He comes out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. He comes out in the power of the Spirit because in the course of his time with the devil, who's tempting him to walk away from his obedience to the Father, Jesus rested in. He rested in God's word alone. He rested in the authority of what his Father has had to say through history. And so he rests, as he rests in that word alone, he comes out on the other side of that, do- other side of that desert in power, in the power of the Spirit. Then in verse 16, chapter 4, Luke tells us that Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So, so thus far, really everything fairly normative, right? Jesus is going to read uh, in the synagogue that day. He's being handed a scroll, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Thus far, nothing sort of out of the ordinary. And then it says, the latter part of 17, unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. And we're going to read here just a second what was written. So, so just catch the subtlety here. Jesus unrolls the prophet Isaiah, which had been handed to him. And then Luke tells us that Jesus went on a hunt, and he found where it was written this particular text. So it's not like the scroll opened, it just opened to Isaiah 61 right at these verses. I mean, I guess it's possible, but what Luke tells us is that he, he opened up that scroll He scanned a little bit, and then he found where this was written. And then he reads from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 61, ultimately. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and for recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed, again, free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And so he began to say, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all of them spoke well and were amazed at his gracious words. This text from Isaiah 61, this prophetic text, has long, has long 
long been told and taught that the writer, Isaiah, is speaking in a prophetic way about the Messiah who is to come. And the Messiah, he has purpose, Isaiah tells us, that he is coming to proclaim good news, that he's coming to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free, and there's going to be recovery for the sight of the blind. And when Jesus says today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled, he is saying both subtly and really not so subtly, that this word from Isaiah 61 I'm it. He's saying subtly and not so subtly, I am the Messiah, the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, interestingly, if we, if we were to walk through the remainder of Luke's gospel, and if we were to walk through Matthew and Mark, not so much John, but a little bit, if we walk through those gospels, we'll see time and time again, those people who are trying to orient their life around Jesus, who, who are following Him as rabbi, who are beginning to recognize that in Jesus the kingdom of heaven is on earth, that it is touchable, that those people time and time again throughout the gospels want to raise him up, or at least have a picture of a Messiah who's going to be an earthly king, who in many ways is going to make Israel great again. He's going to, going to sort of lift up the nation of Israel, right, and she as a nation will be great. And everybody else, right, everybody else who they've had to be prisoners to, when the Messiah comes and is king, then Israel will rise to greatness again. We will once again, I think, have power and authority. And so time and time again, there you see this sort of movement of wanting to make Jesus an earthly king, to sort of set up a, a, a civil kingdom, if you will, and in that civil kingdom, there will be freedom from oppression and freedom from those who have kept us captive. And yet time and time again throughout the Gospels, Jesus is quick to clear up the misunderstanding. Not quite the right picture. The Messiah doesn't come actually to make Israel great again, to make a nation great again. But the Messiah comes to make a people, God's people again. The Messiah comes to release us from a captivity that is so much more than sort of civil infractions but rather to free us from a captivity that is deep in our heart. See, the Messiah, Jesus, came on purpose to proclaim good news and to proclaim freedom from captivity and freedom from oppression. But as the Gospels make clear, that, 
that oppression, that captivity, is our own sin. That since Genesis chapter 3, we have been living in an open rebellion with the Father who is in heaven. Since Genesis chapter 3, we've been living in open rebellion against our Father in heaven. See, like it or not, you and I, we have that blood of Adam and Eve flowing through our veins. We are guilty alongside of them because we are their family. If left to ourselves, if left to ourselves, uh, we deserve nothing but punishment and death. We are enslaved. We are held captive. We are oppressed by the sin in our flesh. And were it not, were it not for a God who loves His children deeply, we would still be enslaved. But, as Jesus makes clear throughout the Gospels, He's come motivated by a deep love for humanity. He's come to do exactly what He says He's going to do, to proclaim good news and to set us free. Not free from Rome, rather free from sin. And freedom, freedom comes with cost. In this case, it's not just the tip of a pinky finger, but rather with outstretched arms, labored breath, blood that flows from a crown pressed into a scalp. motivated by a love who, between labored breath, would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Freedom's costly. When Jesus says, it is finished, it cost him everything. Friends, I, I long for a day when we, as God's children, When we, as those of us who are, again, trying to orient our lives around the words and the ways of Jesus as we're growing in Christ-likeness, I long for the day that when we speak of freedom, that's the first thing we think. That's our first thought. God has loved me so much that His desire is not, not to see us judged, but rather to be with Him forever. I long for the day that when we think of freedom, the first thing we think is the work of Christ Jesus on a cross, in an empty tomb, ascended to power. I long for a day when we think of freedom, that's the first thing we think. Freedom is a gift. It's God's gift for you and for me. It's amazing here in just a few short minutes we'll gather around His table. 
where in a mysterious and a miraculous way, Christ will make Himself present again in bread and in wine and deliver to you again forgiveness and freedom. It's not a barbecue. It's not a meal on the deck with fireworks. It's a wafer and a little bit of wine. And yet it is the body and the blood for your forgiveness and your freedom here again today. But what does that mean? What does that mean then? If we're going to orient our lives around Jesus and grow in Christ's likeness, if we're going to rest in the forgiveness and the freedom that we have in the work of Christ, what does that mean then as we live out our faith? What does it mean as we live as citizens of this country, one that is free? Well, Paul has something to say about it. So let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. So if you have that Bible out already, you just can go further into the New Testament. So get past Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and then you'll come to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. So Paul is, Paul is writing to these Christians in Galatia who have experienced the gospel, who've heard the good news of the work of Christ Jesus for their forgiveness and freedom. But a rumor has come to St. Paul's ear that the people in Galatia are beginning to desert the gospel. They're going to another gospel. They're going to the, to the chatter of the culture rather than resting solely in the work of Christ, both his gift and a costly gift at that. And so at the beginning of his letter, he's drawing, he's drawing the people of Galatia back into the gospel. Say, this is what the gospel is. It is simply this incredible, costly gift of Christ on a cross, resurrected and ascended. As he gets later then into this uh, letter, we get to chapter 5, where he's trying to talk about what then does that mean as we live in this gospel. And so verse 13, Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Can we say amen? Right, by the gospel, we are called to be free, right, free from sin, free to live in the love and the grace that our Father has for us. We have called to be free. Paul says, though, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Do not use your freedom to do whatever you want. That's what Paul is saying. Interestingly, if we just think very quickly about our civil freedom, which leads to individual autonomy, and sort of this, I get to do whatever I want. Paul is saying, you were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to do whatever you want. What does he say? He says, rather, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. 
If you keep on biting and devouring each other, in other words, if you keep doing whatever it is you want and what's for your own good, watch out or you're going to be destroyed. It's really interesting what St. Paul does here. He says, again, in verse 13, you've been called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature. Rather, serve. Maybe we've said this before, if we have, it bears repeating, that the word serve in Greek can also be translated to be indentured. Servant can also be translated slave. So what is Paul doing? He says, you are called to be free, but don't use your freedom forever, whatever you want. Rather, be indentured, be a slave, be a servant to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. The flesh says, I want to do whatever it is I want to do. But the gospel living in us through the power of the Spirit will move us to a place of serving, of dying to our own wants for the sake of other people. That is, by the way, Christ-likeness, who gave Himself for you and for me. And as we rest, as we rest in the gospel, in the freedom that we have in Christ, as we're empowered then by the Spirit, as we serve, as we become indentured to, as we're a, a slave of love for other people, then as Paul says in verse 22, we will begin to see the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And against such things there is no law. I just got done reading a, a spiritual autobiography of a man named Thomas Merton. Now, if you love to read, uh, I, I would encourage you to this book, but, but be warned, it's thick. So you have to set aside some time and a strong cup of tea or coffee, because there is a lot there. But, but in it, Thomas Merton, who, who would late in his life become a Trappist monk in Kentucky, uh, before he ever became a monk, before he ever sort of retreated from the world and had the vocation in a monastery, he, like King Solomon of Old Testament fame, lived according to the flesh as best as he could. Like, he tried everything. He indulged that sort of want and desire for whatever it is I want and whatever it is I desire and whatever it is I want to do. And what he finds is no matter how much he indulged in his sinful nature, no matter how much he indulged in the things that he wanted, he would always find himself wanting more. He discovers actually that he is he's a slave to a sinful nature. In a pretty dramatic moment, Thomas Merton has a conversion. He hears the gospel, and in many ways the gospel becomes real for him. And in so doing, begins to see and explore what it means then to live in the freedom that I have in Christ. And what does it mean then to be a servant or a slave or indentured to my neighbor? What does it mean then to love our neighbors? 
he's writing most of this in the 1940s, lots going on culturally in the 1940s. And as he explores kind of near the end of his book, he, he, he mentions that Christians ought to be people who are known for listening well. Because if I'm a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, I probably listen pretty okay. And he asks sort of rhetorically, what would happen to the culture around us if we got really, really good at listening? What if, rather than barking in the ears of other people, what if we got really good at listening? What if in our freedom in Christ we could listen to another person well? Uh, He says, I wonder what would happen if Christians learned to listen, to be fully present with those who are in front of them. I wonder if we would see the tide of culture shift, not because, we, not because we slammed an ideology down their throat, but because, because we embodied Jesus. Paul says we've been called to be free, so we use our freedom then not to do whatever we want, but to be a slave, to be a servant, to be indentured to our neighbor, to love them well. And in so doing, to be able to show love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and some self-control. I long for the day when the news headlines are not about this Christian nationalist and taking our country back or our county back or whatever, but when the headlines are so enamored by Christians who have a love that overflows for the people around them. The Christians are a people with an unbelievable joy. The Christians are people who have forbearance, patience. The Christians seem to be the kindest people on the planet, the most gentle, the most self-controlled. Maybe, as Thomas Merton says, if we could do that by the power of God's Spirit, we'd see the tide of culture change. So. As we reflect on our freedom, certainly as a country, but more importantly in the freedom that we have in Christ, may it draw to mind this encouragement from St. Paul, that we have an opportunity to love and to love well. All of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding guard and keep our hearts in Christ today and every day. Amen.